0: Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome, dear listeners, to Season 11, Episode 3. I'm your host, Otis Jairi, and in this episode, I'll be performing four tales to terrify you, courtesy of author Jeffrey Ebright, and a collection we have involving wicked rituals, unhappy returns, long-lost acquaintances, both friendly and unfriendly, and some just desserts. Long overdue. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So, lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show's about to begin.
1: <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs,
0: College is a place to learn new things, gain new skills, and perhaps dabble in things we wouldn't otherwise do. But some dabbling can bring about unexpected consequences, and as one professor is about to learn, some knowledge is best left under wraps. Without further ado, I present to you The Prince. I light another cigarette. My lips burst upon the filter. Draw the tobacco to ignite as my lungs crowd with smoke. I'd quit the habit some ten years prior due to health provocation, which may explain why I choked and wheezed through the first pack. Yet as I remove the coffin nail from my mouth, I find I've adjusted to the cancerous smock quite nicely after a three-pack warm-up. The numbness of shock still envelops my body as I stare at the cigarette staining my fingers and emitting the sickly bluish-white smoke. The smoke lazily ascends my index and middle finger, twisting briefly and curling in the air before joining the smog cloud held hostage by my apartment ceiling. All the while, my mind replays the horrid thoughts of yesterday evening without abating. To see me in my present state would be alarming, to say the least, for my hands tremble with epileptic spasms, my face affixed with involuntary twitches. This doesn't even take into account the wrinkled and soiled clothing which clings to my unfed frame like an ill child, to his mother's bosom, or my hair, resembling a loosely bound fodder shock, deliberately ignored for lack of usefulness. And speech would be the most damnable of all, for it would flow in disjointed sentences of a high hysterical voice, devoid of sanity and saturated in urgency. Please, let me assure whoever is reading this account, I am not insane. Rather, I was not insane before the events of last night. As my shaking hands pens these words, I remain unsure as to my current mental status. Of course, who among us could be stolidly confident, of anything, after witnessing the horror I viewed? But I digress. My name's Alan Kedridge, and, like my father and his father before him, I was born and raised in the Pentecostal lifestyle of a sleepy little town nestled in southeastern Ohio named Waverly's Crossing. To call the town Backwoods would be unfair, for Waverly's Crossing resembled many other cities which were always on the verge of metropolitanism, yet restrained themselves for want of a simple life and basic moral values. We shared the same creature company as the larger cities of Cincinnati and Cleveland. But our town was not bound by oppressive metal and glass skyscrapers that stretched like Jacob's Ladder to heaven and separated the populace by cold distance. Waverley's Crossing is a community in the greater sense of the word. And when my beautiful mother, Anne Carlisle Kettridge, birthed me in 1949... Waverley's crossing beamed with pride over their new resident. Of my school years there is little to report. I was above average as a student who, despite my father's intentions, excelled in forensics and the thespian arts in lieu of sports-related activities. Do not misunderstand. I was not a fragile youth bereft of athletic ability. I was merely inclined more toward mental progression than physical expression. In 1967, I was bestowed a high school diploma and steeled myself for the ultimate fear of my 18-year-old life, adulthood. What was I to do now that I had become an official adult? I pondered this perplexing question one month before the United States government decided my course of action. Selective service. August Lottery had called my name. I was to go to a small, turbulent country called Vietnam to keep the peace. At this point, I must declare I did not go to Vietnam with chivalrous notions of saving the free world from communism, nor did I go to experience the romanticism of war. I went to Vietnam because it was expected of me to do so. Had not my grandfather and father served before me? Was it not my civic duty to fight? I was simply doing what my lineage had set as the standard for future generations, and not because of blind obedience to the government. I went to Vietnam because that's what a catarge was supposed to do. Speculation of the correct moral agenda, that'll have to wait for another day. My wartime task was, as a crew member, for our air troop transport. Each day, the crew and I would shuttle soldiers fresh out of boot camp from San Francisco to Saigon. Both gung-ho and reluctant warriors were released into the foreign deltas, their untarnished naive spirits soon to turn hard in the unforgiving world of war. Yet, I was not to escape the devastation and destruction of the war. After the new arrivals had long departed the airfield and joined the conflict in the race fields, our secondary job was deployed. Though I was never to see battle, I was to reap the harvest sown by this malefic war. In the sickly humid air under the blazing Vietnamese sun, our crew began loading deceased soldiers. Swathed in olive drab cocoons of standard U.S. issue body bags. If I were to relate the most disturbing aspect of my experience in country, it would be the dehumanization of those brave men we filled our plane with like so much cordwood. I'll never forget the smell of the generic green plastic body bags intertwining with the stench of rotting flesh. A horrific aspect fell to the fact that I probably knew the decaying carcasses I loaded into the belly of the plane, even sharing a cigarette with those I met during the primary mission. To know those virginal faces were now deceased in the body bags, staring with glazed dead eyes at nothing, disturbs me to this day. I'm thankful I don't suffer from post-traumatic stress syndrome but the remembrance still chills my bones and upends the hair on the back of my neck. Ten months later, I returned to civilian life with crystal clarity of purpose and direction. I entered college and studied philosophy and the social sciences. As President Nixon's strategic withdrawal of U.S. troops hit full stride, I graduated with my Ph.D., and salutary honors from an established Ivy League school and resettled in Waverley's Crossing. Although it was not the most prestigious place to begin my career, I accepted a professorship at local Western University in the philosophy department. I was a young man, rapidly approaching my thirties, so my options were few indeed. Therefore, I welcome this employment. It took a matter of five years before I became head of the philosophy department at Western, and I'm proud to report my sterling record and excellent academic standards, which I instilled in both students and staff. I must add, I'm a well-respected member of many philosophy think tanks, and am held in high regard by my peers. In review of my scrawling, believe I've sufficiently established my credentials. I've also exhausted two more packs of cigarettes in the process. I now feel I may offer the instant, which has pulled the proverbial carpet of reality from underneath my logically planted feet. I shall steady my pen and brace my nerves, for someone must know what transpired in that unholy church. Someone must realize what has been unleashed upon our fragile, spinning planet? Someone, perhaps you, brave for here. Stop this unchained horror before the hour grows too late. The events leading to last night's terror began two weeks ago, which seems like another lifetime now. I was teaching a remedial philosophy class with the topic Theories of Heaven and Hell, Social and Theological Aspects. From experience, I knew this was to be a heated debate due to the inherent volatility and extreme opinions generated by the subject matter. I allotted a full week to this discussion. The first day of general discussion, the next two days in the Judeo-Christian angle, a day for Eastern philosophy, and the final day delving into paganism and so-called Satanism. It was on the final day that Tim Narcick became vocal. Tim Narsick, more commonly known around the campus as the Death Dealer, or Double D to his friends, was the savior of Western University's football program. His six-foot-six, 290-pound frame of solid muscle single-handedly put Western in the coach's top 25 pole for three years running. Not only was the boy a destructive defensive linebacker, He was part of a rare breed that played offense as well, third-down running back, short-yardage specialist. His face, seemingly created by an inspired Grecian sculptor, held piercing blue eyes. His golden hair, long and feathered, would have completed the image Hitler had sought for the master race. To be kind, what he had in the way of physical prowess and beauty did not balance his struggling academic academically. Yet he walked the halls of the school as if he were its progenitor. Any words spoken from his full lips seemed prepared and deliberate in the execution and were normally delivered as a rebuttal. Faculty and peers alike respected Tim Narzik, but he had few friends. I can't recall the actual tangent we'd been debating at that moment. It didn't matter. Tim Narzik's voice severed the discussion and drew all eyes to him. "'The prince is God,' he stated cleanly. "'Excuse me, Mr. Narsik," I uttered, bewildered at the force of his words. "'The prince is God,' he stated. "'Prince?' "'Yes.' "'Would you care to elaborate?' I was duly intrigued. "'Yes.' At this point, all eyes were upon him. "'He spoke with a reflective confidence. "'I was ten years old. "'I was diagnosed with a rare type of bone cancer. "'Doctors said I wouldn't make it to my 11th birthday. "'There was no cure, they said. "'Said I was terminal. "'I prayed to the Christ God. "'At this, he sneered, and it got worse. "'Really?' "'I was intrigued with no words to back up my intellectual awards.' Then I found a copy of them, a crumb the Cromicon. Read it cover to cover, twice. Then I prayed to the prince. He heard me. He cured me. His words were like cold water in my face, brisk and stark in its content. Oh, that's not true, man, said one student. Think so? I was penetrating blue eyes fixed on the boy. I went from 100-pound klutz to this. Maybe you just ate your Wheaties. Another tried to joke, but the humor fell flat. It was the prince, he stated unfazed. Thankfully, the class bell sounded. The students filed out almost shell shocked by the frank admission. My psyche sufficiently rattled. I began preparations for my next class. Philosophy of Modern War. I didn't notice Mr. Narzik approached the rostrum, so he startled me as he spoke once more. Professor Kettridge, I noticed the way you listened to my story. Yes? My voice was shaky for no reason. If you'd like to see for yourself, I offer you an invitation to my church. Maybe you could get an opinion without being prejudiced. His smile was most disarming. Actually, my curiosity's piqued. Good. My place of worship is on the corner of Delacroix and West Elm. Do you know where that is? I believe I do, Tim, my response was sluggish. Thank you for the invitation. Welcome. He let the door close behind him. A cool jetty of fear splashed my heart, yet my curious nature took precedent. Had I but known what awaited me there... I would have lobotomized my curiosity center that instant. As it stood, it still required one full week before I amassed the fortitude to sally forth. Visiting the unholy dwelling was either accomplished through sheer bravery or utter stupidity. Both terms fall to me as synonymous in hindsight. I must pause, reader, for now uh, shall I unfold the events of last night? Here then is the most trying part of my narration, for my cigarette cache is critically low. The crushed filters spilled over the edge of my large ceramic ashtray, like a tidal wave to a crumbling dike. My throat is severely raw, yet it does distract from the throbbing of my temples. I'll persevere because time is of the essence. I feel the shroud of the Reaper looming over my shoulder unwilling to barter. If only I know. The past is now circumspect. The die is cast. The black night shall be revealed. The waxing crescent moon sliced luminously through the ebony sky, igniting pinpoint stars across the heavens. The fading satellite illumination cast silver fingers of moon glow across the landscape of Waverley's crossing creating an opaqueness and otherworldly tone to the buildings in countryside. After a laborious day of schooling and very unwilling to retreat my divorce decreed apartment, I set upon a nocturnal drive of my hometown. The persecuting headlights released passing buildings into periphery, transforming them to phantom towers where the unspeakable escaped moonlight. Blurred surroundings released my conscious mind, allowing my subconscious to take the wheel. The haze of non-remembrance lifted as I found myself closing the car door. But I was not home. I can only assume my unthinking mind had brought me to the place I now stood, the corner of Delacroix and West Elm. My senses sharpened acutely, and all the oppressive flaccidness university activity, and the subsequent car venture disappeared from Lemon Mind as I surveyed the suburban environment I'd entered. Narzik had not been exact in his directions, for the only building resembling a church was the house adjacent to the dilapidated house, which rested on the intersection. Excited and anxious, I broke through the property line, demarcated by eight-foot fir trees, to get my first glimpse of the Church of the Prince.
1: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need.
0: Pristinely painted was the church, pure white coating basking serenely in the calm crescent light. A peaceful aura, akin to the flower bed of power blue tulips and snow lilies along the foundation, encircled the church with the cool comfort of a down-filled blanket on a lightless winter day. Mower strokes held order across the length of the front lawn, with only the pristine sidewalk Parting the well kept sea of green. The steeple spire harmoniously ascended, while visions of Christ in ornate stained glass peered from each window. The montage showed him sermonizing, him trekking to the cavalry and the bloody crucifixion. And this perplexed me. Christ represented so boldly. Was this some twisted relishing of Christ's suffering for the prince's followers? "'Is this a public display meant toward blasphemy?' "'I realized it was not, for in my zealous observation, "'I had missed the yard placard on the curb. "'It simply read, "'The First Church of Christ Jesus, "'Rev. Delis Kellong, Pastor.' A "'Acidic fear coiled in my spine "'and waited to strike me as I crossed back "'through the phalanx of fir trees. "'Mr. Narzik was indeed accurate with his directions.' Within the weed-infested lot, a crudely constructed curb sign limped in proclamation. The Church of the Prince. Welcome to all. Repenting for my original oversight, I turned a critical eye upon the church facade. I felt a curious sense of déjà vu as I realized the two structures were similar in architectural design. Gooseflesh arose, for it felt as if I was seeing... An alternate version of the Christ Church as viewed through a twisted looking glass. Whereas the Christ Church soothingly reflected the moonlight, the Prince Church engulfed the mercurial rays, birthing sinister shadows of malefic intent. The aura encompassing the Prince Church radiated unnatural silence as spidery, blackish green fingers of vegetation clawed the crimson-brown foundation. The sweet flower aroma of the Christ Church became the fetid stench of wet earth and stinkweed in the yard of the Prince Church. The nailing spire impotently sagged from the top of the building as if repulsed from the sky. The stained glass was presented as knotty pine boards, haphazardly nailed across the windows, without a hint of light from within, my fire of curiosity sufficiently stoked, I aired towards caution, and worked my way to the rear of the structure, with the hope of a less conspicuous entrance. I retrieved my penlight from my breast pocket of my jacket, and proceeded to scout. A rusted steel gate proved to be my only hindrance. Vertigreed and deteriorated, the gate's double-pronged latch refused admittance so far as to make me scale the useless portal. The blame of poor upkeep could not be completely affixed to the minions of the prince, for the fence was a shield to a vast graveyard that encompassed both backyards of the churches. My miniature penlight skimmed from headstone to tombstone, glistening upon newer stones, while briefly spotting the worn and less attended markers. It was then, under the mystic moonbeam, my mind's eye envisioned the struggle between the churches. I imagined the spiritual warfare waged over the decaying and lost souls located in the soil. I could visualize both theological camps forever locked in a vicious circle of death and redemption, never retreating, never surrendering, never giving ground, never allowing a definitive victor. Registering this observation... I quickly set out to gain entry into the ominous church of the Prince. Fumbling under the influx of adrenaline, my anxious hands made to open the dilapidated door of the service entrance. Flakes of rust fell precipitously to the overgrown patio as I carefully turned the knob. It was unlocked to my amazement. Just as surprising, the door opened soundlessly no alarming creak or squeak was issued. I had truly envisioned the sound effects commonly associated with horror movies, yet the door swung inward without timber. I entered with the silver moon, smiling evilly upon my back. My minuscule light confirmed my suspicions. This room was once a storage pantry. A twenty-square-foot room, neatly displayed rich... Unornamented robes of blood red on the right. Countering on the left, an antique oak table supported various platters, candelabras, and chalices of brightly polished silver. Additionally, two boxes of tapered 12 inch black candles lay motionless next to the glittering ware. Beside the door leading outdoors, there was another door, undoubtedly providing access to the church's inner sanctum. Beyond the door, my ears peeked the low sound. Almost guttural chanting. The chant was both enticing and repulsive, yet, since I detected no break in cadence, I assumed my unlawful entrance remained undetected. However, I was not going to open the door to prove my theory. Limited in options, my resolve began crumbling like sandcastles against the waxing tide. It was then my trusty penlight offered another alternative to the humming portal. Obscured behind the robes, a skeletal ladder of wrought iron scaled the wall, escaping into the inky darkness above the pantry ceiling. Before I accepted its invitation, my rational mind proffered a preventative measure to be taken. Stripping a malleable lump of ebony wax from its cordwick, I neatly waded the keyhole and its interior with a black wax. As an extra precaution, I spent what seemed hours delicately turning the latch bolt, further clogging the door's ability to grant access. If I were to be discovered, I hoped this would provide me with critical seconds for an unmolested escape into the graveyard beyond. With unexpected hurdles in place, clenched my pen lighted my teeth and began ascending the stolid ladder as I surmised the ladder evacuated into a maintenance walkway that crossed around the interior of the church abandoned cobwebs choking dust motes and a cloying musty odor were the only furnishings here for no particular reason I chose the right path with only my small halogen beam leading Cautiously traversing the cramped walkway, I discovered a baseball-sized hole in the ceiling. Undoubtedly, a light fixture once resided there, breaching the wallboard. A somber light from below filtered up through the hole, along with the faint aroma of spicy incense. I swallowed hard and proceeded to garner my first view of the Congregational Hall of the Church of the Prince. Approximately 150 feet in length, 75 feet in width, were the temple's dimensions. Black paint inundated the walls and steeple ceiling, which made measurement difficult, if not impossible. Deep mahogany pews upholstered in plush wine fabric aligned six in each row with three distinctive rows. Five foot tall, freestanding silver candelabras bookmarked each entrance to the pews. Each candelabra maintained a single black candle flickering a dark light. Two wine rugs divided the rows like pulsing arteries, leading to the dais. The altar itself stood four feet in height, measured six feet across, and was completely composed of bloodstone. Bloodstone is a jet-black rock with tiny veins of cardinal red sediment running throughout. I'd never thought a geological wonder such as this could ever be termed as sinister, However, as it lay in a circle of power, or pentagram, which was carved on the floor where it was set, my opinion quickly changed. The finishing touch had shining silver braziers just outside the circle at each star point, lazily churning out the heady incense I previously detected. The parishioners entered, 57 in all, and took places on the pews in their voluminous, gender-obscuring robes, Rumbling chant of the parishioners echoed through the chamber as a dark chorus of obscene strength. Of the crowd below, three made their way to the dais. These three were set apart from the rest due to the black sashes they wore. One of the three was further placed apart from the other two, for the black sash worn was covered with malefic silver runes of a forgotten language. The obscured continued the unholy chorus. "'unseen mouths "'until the three were positioned "'correctly upon the platform. "'The atmosphere, "'although macabre and hounding, drew me into the ambience "'of the thrumming chords. "'I felt lightheaded, "'almost mesmerized by the chant. "'It was only when the high priest "'held his hand aloft, "'silencing the siren's call, "'did I regain my senses "'and snap attentively. "'The awakening is at hand!' "'Cruist's baritone split the fresh silence. "'Let the vessel of our lord approach!' "'In the first pew of the center section, "'a single figure rose and strode confidently onto the platform. "'The figure kneeled briefly before the altar, "'then stood motionless before the onlookers. "'The two, in simple black sashes, "'opened the vessel's robe, "'allowing it to deflate about the vessel's feet.' Within the robe, a nude figure was revealed. His Olympian physique glistened in the low candlelight, and his penis was erect with a promise of things to come. Strands of feathered blonde hair sweatily framed his statuesque face. His piercing blue eyes surveyed the red robed audience without emotion. A frigid fear engulfed me. Tim Narzik was the vessel of the prince. The high priest's hooded eyes twinkled animalistically, producing a wickedly curved dagger encrusted with stones. The priest presented the dagger to Narcig, who graciously accepted. Now begins the time of the prince. The priest boomed, inspiring the parishioners into chanting. I need not have looked at my watch to know it was midnight stifling apprehension in my heart confirmed the time. In a language ancient and foul, three priests began a recitation that could only be construed as a spelling. The phonics sounded like a bastardized version of Latin, yet far, far older and diabolical. My intuition begged me to leave at this point, yet I could not cease my voyeurism. I had to see. It is only now that I regret my damnable curiosity. Narzik grasped the dagger with both hands, pointing toward his defined chest. Instead of plunging the knife into his bosom, Narzik calmly sliced a bloody X, going diagonally from each nipple, deftly into his flesh. Droplets of gore carelessly dribbled down his chest, spattering his feet in cold platform below, as he began carving an inverted V. The point of the V began at his upper sternum, with the tips of the V joining the lower portion of the previously carved X. Another tributary opened as he connected his sliced nipples with a horizontal gash. Narzik's final act of self-mutilation had the gore-soaked blade "'encircling his newly-created five-pointed star, "'completing the bloody pentagram forged in blood and pain. "'The dagger fell from his hand, "'clattering noisily to the floor. "'Immediately the priests were beside him, "'leading him to the bloodstone altar. "'The trio laid Narzik upon the altar "'and vacated the pentagram on the floor, "'never breaking their aberrant cadence.' I cannot confirm the final, breathless words of Tim Narzik, as he lay bleeding to death on that cold slab of ghastly stone. Yet I would testify, he mouthed, Thy will be done, mighty Prince. It was then the fantastic, supplanted reality. The five braziers erupted, spewing sickly-colored clouds. The smoke never left the circle of power on the floor spewing to twist and turn within its confines. Each brazier vomited individual colors of fuchsia, sapia, cannery, cyan, and chartreuse, neither colors supplanting nor mingling with the other. The smog began dancing above Narzik in a vulgar choreography of spasmodic threads. The spicy aroma of incense had also retreated, leaving the foul corrosive air of things ancient Dead and decaying. It was then my unbelieving eyes caught the face of Death Dealer Narzik. The confident, arrogant smile of Narzik had melted away, leaving a face of paralyzed distress to defend. My jaw literally fell slack as I noticed the splotches of crimson on the dagger and platform begin coagulating. The blood defied gravity cascading into the base of the hovering cloud. My constitution lurched as the midst of blasphemous colors glowed as if vitalized or brought to life by the absorbed blood. If it were alive, the blood it had taken surely did not satisfy its craving. Rivulets of blood floated away from Nasric's body, a crimson sprinkle of rain. The crude pentagram etched on his chest suddenly burst like an overtaxed dam of flesh. More accurately, the blood gushed upward as if it were a faucet abruptly thrust full open. The merciless waterfall of crimson life ascended brutally, draining its victim barren. This fact did not escape nazric's attention. I could never, even if I were given two lifetimes, describe nazric's face, twisted in a desperate, futile plea of terror and despair. I believe watching your very life's blood being slowly consumed to be in a realm that eclipses any subconscious nightmare anyone could ever dream. Asric's back arched shockingly, attempting to rid himself of the obvious agony coursing through his frame, his massive hands clenched and unclenched in futility as the endless flow of crimson continues. I watched like a disembodied spirit as his tan body blanched under the assault of the beastly, colorful cloud. Somewhere in my mind, a small prayer was said for the poor boy to end the suffering. What seemed like decades of torture, the macabre siphoning lasted a scant minute or two. Narzik's hollow eyes fixed upon the final red droplet. It bobbed in midair, bidding a final adieu. "'joined its kindred in the foul thing above. Narzik's body relaxed from the assault, "'and he exhaled a ragged breath of relief. "'A sudden recognition dawned upon his pale face. "'It was more than a spasmodic exhalation his lungs performed. "'It was the expiration of life itself. "'Tim Narzik offered a final expression "'of unbelieving betrayal as he heard his own death rattle "'and collapsed.' Willing to embrace the concept of utter madness to retain the final threads of sanity, I tenuously held. I found myself unable to detach myself from the continuing saga. I watched the high priest break cadence. In the tongue of an ancient bastard language, he began chanting directly at the throbbing cloud. The words spewed from his vile lips it affected the cloud. It swayed like a cobra, to the seductive flute. Oh dear reader, I can never relate the sheer horrific numbness as I watched spindly fingers emerge from the thing and descend. The colorful tendrils lovingly caressed the flesh pentagram on Nar's still chest, then proceeded to seep into the carved cracks. The malefic fog pulsed vibrantly as its mass dwindled into the pentagram, flowing like smoke under a shut door. Once the final wisp of foul cloud invaded the corpse, the pentagram briefly held a phosphorescent hue and vanished. It was not my imagination that I observed the pale pallor revert to its golden tan, nor did I dream the sliced flesh begin to mend with deliberation Neither did I imagine the carved flesh disappear leaving a clean, rugged chest. However, I pray that I dreamt the sight of Narzik's dead corpse sitting upright, issuing slight wisps of colorful vapor from the mouth. The thing that was not Narzik, disoriented in its new form, glared about the church in bitter unremembrance corpse swung its feet haphazardly over the altar, and to the floor, babbling cryptic thoughts to itself. It walked with toddler steps, then matured its gait. With the improvement of the fiscal, its speech seemed to progress, Germanic to Pict, to Saxon to English. The thing observed his silent congregation as the three priests swathed his new body in an indigo robe covered with sharp, twisted runes. He raised his hands in the air and beamed horribly at the followers, causing them to fall to their collective knees in awe and homage. Then, in a voice of bottomless evil, two words fell from its lips like thunder as it smiled with all the venom in the world. Worship me. My fragile intellect became a pane of glass, with its words striking me like a brick. I shattered and quickly sought escape from this waking nightmare. I don't recall where I received the bruise discoloring my left cheek, nor can I explain the gash now clotting on my right forearm. The only incident I can relate is the cursing and abuse heaped upon the wax door by the followers of the prince as I made my way to freedom happily, drew a breath of the outdoors and smiled at the release. Then I froze. Warm urine flowed serenely down my trouser leg, pooling in my loafer and puddling underfoot. Terror, brisk and uncontrollable, constricted my windpipe like a Perseus, gazing into Medusa's scaly face. How I would have welcomed turning to stone. Instead, the deep blue eyes of a dead man pierced my soul with a razor-blade stare. In that instant, I knew the dead eyes of Tim Narzik were alive as the Prince of Darkness. Our gaze locked for an eternity. My mind purged itself of all memories, all wisdom, all dreams, all possible futures. I felt rigor mortis creep into my bones as the Prince held the grin of a Cheshire cap on his stolen face. The moon over its shoulder looked like the reaper's sickle, ready to harvest. I resolved my fate right then and there. It looked at me with finality and laughed. I spared no second glance as I fled. Its hollow, humorless laugh reverberated in my eardrums. The mocking chuckle from the lips of a dead man can never be erased from my poor mind no matter how I would pray to end. In reviewing these cramped pages of dissertation, I mournfully extinguished my final cigarette. I shall not journey out for more. I can no longer leave my little apartment. Why? When I returned from my last nicotine excursion, a large, innocuous brown-papered package awaited me. There was neither card nor return address enclosed. Shall I relate the contents which shake me to my very marrow? Inside the brown fold of paper, a pristine, olive-drab body bag with my name stenciled on the outside, reeking of newness and bodily decay. Although it would have substantiated my claims, I threw the abhorrent thing down the incinerator slot, keeping the blasted thing which surely have destroyed any fragments of my psyche that remained. Should I have kept it? It doesn't matter now. Such observations are moot. I've gazed into the piercing blue eyes of the abyss and found myself condemned. You see, the Prince of Darkness walks the earth, and he calls my name. I hope you enjoyed The Prince by Jeffrey Ebright as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, you can help support him by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash Jeffrey E. Bright. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash J-E-F-F-R-E-Y dash... E-B-R-I-G-H-T. Beyond his writing, he has quite an eclectic list of feats, not the least of which is his internet talk show, Insomnia Ramble Stream. Come take a look, if you dare. (laughs) If you do decide to stop by the profile, please leave Jeffrey a kind word and let him know you heard about him here on this show, and that Otis Gyre sent you. It would mean a lot to me. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. Got a feel for poor Tim, being deceived like that. But if you can't trust the words of the absolute prince of darkness, who can you trust, really? But at least Tim knew he was destined for greater things. There are some of us who don't necessarily know oh, what we're supposed to do, though. Take our next fellow, a native of the lands across the pond He's found himself in a rough spot and has taken to wandering to find what life is really about. Thing is, he's about to find out, though he would be the last to expect what that is. Without further ado, I present to you One in the Mist. Have you ever woken up from a dead sleep in the middle of the night... with a crushing obligation sitting on your chest like a bull elephant? No? Me neither. My sleep is never clouded with vivid dreams or horrific nightmares. To me, it's simply a function of resting, nothing more. And that was the problem with my entire life. One morning, I awoke to the dismally cloudy sun pushing dull light through my window, feeling as if the entirety of my life only existed in wasted moments. I looked out the window of my tiny Wiltshire boarding house room and stared blankly at the tall, thin, shoulder-to-shoulder cracker box houses nestling along the narrow street, like people crowding together to watch a parade. The expressions of the buildings mirrored the people who moved across the pavement. Slow, passive, and blank like prisoners of war after capture. In the boredom, I began to wonder, what had I done with my life? Where were my shining achievements? I'm not saying I had to find a cure for cancer, but I hadn't done anything close to a legacy. It's like waking from a coma after decades had passed, and everything had just gone about its business without any regard to me. Yet my hands weren't completely clean in this whole non-involvement with living. In the words of the immortal philosopher, Jimi Hendrix, it's such a shame to spend the time away like this, existing. That was me in a very uncomfortable nutshell. Since I had no family, left, the ties to Wiltshire could easily be severed. There was literally no reason for me to stay here the blur of my life stuck in my head like Excalibur in the stone. I gave notice to my job, pawned off some family heirlooms. I didn't have anyone to pass them down to, so I might as well let those old relics work for me, for a tidy sum. I did keep few things for sentimental and financial emergencies, and I packed up my essentials into my trusty rucksack and bid my village a fawn goodbye while waving hello to a new adventure. That was three years ago. In keeping with my previous boring existence, I did nothing remarkable. At least I don't remember doing anything remarkable. My brain never seemed too keen about memory retention. I traveled the width and breadth of the United Kingdom, from Britain to Scotland to Wales, and short jaunt over to Ireland. I walked the aisle like Cain in that old kung-fu TV show from America. I saw some tourist spots, had a few rows, had a few more pints, which might explain the reason for getting into a few rows in the first place. When I wasn't getting some sleep in a smelly hostel, I camped under the stars. Unfortunately, the journey wasn't without the lovely English rain that followed me throughout most of my trek. Compared to the industrial grime of the bigger cities, I really enjoyed the small towns and villages. It was like stepping back a hundred years into the past. No hustle, no bustle, no motorways choked with cars. You could call it the simple life, but the stories I collected in the colorful taverns and pubs along the way were priceless to me. I made my way to a little village in Cornwall, so close to the coast could hear the ocean waves the shore. In the distance, I could see what looked like a dilapidated stone structure perched on a cliffside overlooking the channel, possibly a tower to a once majestic castle. It now stood neglected and abandoned in the receding rays of vivid orange sunlight. Thick, surly vines climbed the walls as if nature had challenged and won against the castle stones. I can't say if it was the setting sun or my partial exhaustion from traveling, but for the briefest of moments I thought I saw a figure standing by the ruined castle tower. Unfortunately, I was too far away for any real details. All I could make out was a long gray cloak, or possibly a gown, that seemed to flow with the ocean breeze. I shielded my eyes against the warm sun and tried refocusing. The figure had vanished. I shrugged it off and made a mental note to see what that was all about in the morning. Since the sun was rapidly dipping behind the rolling countryside, I opened the creaking door to Archie's Tavern. Hopefully, food and lodging would be found in short order. The tavern was standard fare. A small bar guarded the shelves of liquor on the back wall. Pipe and cigarette smoke mingled in the air with a faint smell of fryer grease. Decorations, yellowed by time and nicotine, clung to the walls depicting various village happenings throughout the years. More from boredom than anything else, the patron's eyes followed me to the barn, tried acting as if they weren't interested in this stranger. Only the swaying man at the fruit machine didn't offer me a glance. The barman looked me up and down as he shuffled beer mats for no particular reason, he placed a relatively clean beer mat in front of me, and set the remaining stack under the bar. What can I do for you? His voice was authoritarian, but friendly. There were the obvious signs he enjoyed tossing a few back by the reddish nose and earlobes. He was stout, more poly than rollery, and he kept himself decently groomed with a clean-shaven face and graying black hair. His green eyes had the look of a man who enjoyed the victories of life instead of allowing the dimness of defeat to creep in. Then again, it might have been unlimited access to bitters. Well, I'm looking for a bit of food and spirits and then a reasonable B&B for the night. That I can help with, lad. The barman smiled and knocked on the pitted bar top. To answer your last question first, Mrs. Penrose is three doors down. She'll rent you a nice little flat for fifteen pounds a night. She'll give you a discount if you let her sniggle for a tick. Someone slurred from one of the tables. Most of the patrons gave the comment a modest chuckle. We got fresh fish cakes and chips. Decent? Well, it's hard to bollocks up chips, the barman shrugged. Fish cakes are made by my wife every morning. They're not horrible. Until the next day, when you can't get off the toilet, called another patron. This response elicited peals of belly laughs. Shut at you, plonker, the barman growled back. That tab of yours will be due in full at the end of the night. I'll try an order. In my travels, I'd like to think I've already had the worst of worst. I developed an almost morbid fascination with anything labeled the worst. To date, I still hadn't discovered anything so brutal that I couldn't confidently categorize it as a truly culinary biohazard. Well, except for a particularly ghoulish blood sausage I ate in London, which laid me up in hospital for five days. I'll get to it directly, but first, snatched up a glass from the shelf fan of bitters, or would you prefer some made-right-here-on-the-premise cider? He thrust a hand toward me. I shook it. Archer's my name, and brewing's my game. His smile got wider. And for three pound ten, it's a proper deal. Finally, something truthful came out of his mouth. Shot one of the patrons. The others shared another chuckle. I think I'd fancy some cider. I put a ten-pound note on a bar top that had seen better days. He continued to grin as he slid the pint glass under one of the pub's two taps. With a brief gurgle and lurch, a dark amber liquid slowly filled the glass. I could tell he was more used to pouring bitters, as he kept the glass at an angle to the mouth of the tap, but there was very little foam to be seen. So where do you usually hang your hat? Welcher? But I've been traveling for a while. On a holiday? Well, you could say that. I didn't want to be standoffish, but a traveler on their own becomes a target in some places. Got a couple days before it's back to the salt mines. They mind salt? And Wiltshire? An eavesdropping patron asked. your ears to yourself, Owen. Archie barked at him before presenting me. "'with a slightly over glass of cider. "'Let's see if this helps round out the journey. "'I call it the Banshee's Brew. "'I took one drink, then a second, "'and a third before I spoke again. "'Archie the barman and the whole pub "'waited breathless for my verdict. "'This is outstanding. What's your secret?' "'Sure ain't his technique,' taunted a patron. "'Archie offered a scowl at the patron,' "'then turned back to me with a restored smile. "'The Banshee's Brew isn't your normal cider. "'No, sir. "'It's made with special apples. "'Some might even say magical apples.' "'Really?' "'I tried not to sound unimpressed and failed. "'As sure as you're sitting there. "'Have you never heard of the legend of young Lord Penswick? "'I can't say as I have. "'I finished the pint. "'Archie quickly refilled the glass.' You saw the old ruins on the cliff shore? I nodded. That's where Lord Penswick built his castle after the Crusades. It's one of the oldest structures around these parts. Legend has he was a wizard in King Richard's army and used what magics he learned from Merlin's very own spell book to erect it in one day. A wizard? Aye. Legend said Merlin's book found young Penswick in the wretched streets of London, destitute street urchin. Richard the Lionhearted knew those Saracen devils were winning the war with dark magics. So he took the boy in and set him to the task of learning the arcane arts. The king figured he wasn't about to ignore any possible advantage. Magic, you say. If I'm lying, I'm dying and the boy took to it like duck to water. Henswick became the greatest white magic practitioner, and swayed many battles with his power. With the crown victorious in the Holy Land once again, Richard returned to England and left the task of routing the dark-skinned savages to Penswick and his regiment. And that's where the ghost in the ruins comes from. I'm getting there, Archie grumbled, and drew me another cider. The impatience of youth. Get to it, Archie. Shut off, Rich. "'This is my story to tell, if you'll keep all your mouths closed.' "'You were saying.' "'I tried to get him back to the topic. "'Where was I?' "'He tapped the bar top for a moment. "'Oh, yeah. "'It was at the end of the campaign, in Penswick, no older than yourself, mind you, "'was given the task to clear the countrysides of the Holy Land "'of any Saracen resistance.' One particular night his army came across a group of warriors led by a wise old Saracen chieftain. Penswick found them bloody and beaten and refused to put them to the sword. For the mercy he showed the chieftain gifted Penswick with his most cherished possession, his daughter Baha. Legend says she was a woman of unrivaled beauty, and both immediately fell in love. I wouldn't think a Saracen wife or practicing witchcrafts that well with the church, and it didn't get over with Penswick's betrothed Esther either. King Richard's awarding of a title and lands to Lord Penswick threw Esther into an unspeakable rage. She vowed revenge upon Lord Penswick and his bride. So it was many years passed while Lord Penswick and Lady Baha made a bountiful life for themselves and those who lived upon his lands. Some say he used his magics to keep he and his wife diseased and age-free and maintained the prosperity of the lands. I believe that to be true. Where the ground was once poisoned to farmers, crops found purchase in soil. What they didn't know was Esther had been quietly planning a hideous revenge with the help of dark and forbidden necromancy. Hold up thought the cider was catching up to me. Necromancy, Like the undead? Of a sort. It is dark magic that allows communion with all manner of things foul and corrupted for the necromancer's bidding. Esther's heart had grown as black as pitch and cruel as the devil. Archie paused to let the weight of his words sink in. Lord Penswick was away on business when Esther finally unleashed her fury. It's said that she pried open the very gates of hell to extract her of her revenge. She commanded legions of the dead and damned to lay waste to the lands and spare no soul her wrath. The only person not spared a quick death was poor Baha. Esther took her time, torturing Penswick's true love ways I can't even begin to imagine. But Esther was not done as she rained fire from the heavens upon Penswick's castle, reducing it to rubble. Witnesses to this night of destruction said the clouds themselves could be seen burning with an unholy fire as far away as Wales, which was where Lord Penswick had been attending to his business. I'm still not making the connection with the cider's secret ingredient. The cider was definitely kicking in. "'I said I was getting there, and I bloody well am.' "'Archie huffed and regained his composure. "'Lord Penswick demanded the fastest horse available, "'and he and his guards galloped through the dark night "'at a dangerous pace. "'At that point, he didn't care what was the cause. "'Lord Penswick knew he'd put an end to it "'right quick and proper-like. "'A journey that should have taken four full days.' was accomplished in less than two. The sun had greeted him back to the lands with a carnage he'd only seen during the Crusades. From the moment he crossed into the village proper, the bodies of his serfs littered the lands in bloody twisted shells of their former selves. Not even the animals were spared. Crops and buildings were sacked and burned with such thorough ruthlessness. He fought through the stench of burnt flesh and freshly spilled blood clogging his nose as he made his way to Penswick Castle. I hate this part, said Reg. I should think the heavens themselves shook that day under the weight of Lord Penswick's crushing sorrow as he held the tormented and violated body of his dark-skinned love. Baha had not just been tortured. She'd been reduced to a pile of burnt flesh and pulp bones. Although Esther had sought fit to keep Baha's wedding ring intact, so Lord Penswick would have no doubt Baha had met a most brutal, tormented death. Penswick wept as he looked at Baha's tormented face and knew the unspeakable indignities she'd suffered. He had no doubt it was Esther. Only she could have dished out such a cruel death to his beloved. Lord Penswick swore an oath at that very moment that his magic would see to justice for his beloved. Revenge! Owen yelled. Bloody right! Reg added. But Penswick didn't have long to wait. Under the light of the next full moon, Esther the Hag returned. She believed the darkness of night would give her power over the grieving Lord. What followed was a battle of epic proportions. Lord Penswick had created artifacts. That laid low her evil forces, leaving only their personal magics to win the day. Once more she rained unholy fire from the skies, swallowing him whole. Her folly was being unable to resist seeing her handiwork up close. When she was close enough to touch, Lord Penswick summoned his waning strength and wrapped a righteous hand round her throat. He unloosed his most powerful curse and cast her into the ocean for all of eternity. Before Lord Benswick wandered off to die from his wounds, he used the last of his magic to bless Baha's garden as a reminder to all that love can never truly be extinguished. And make your cider from the apples grown in Baha's garden, right? Exactly. Archie slapped the bar top. Bollocks. What? who's generally astonished by my words. Hags? Banshees? Demons? Undead? Seriously, you need a jimmy bar to fit any more clichés into the story. This has to be the most creatively unoriginal way to present a fictional backstory. And for what? To sell a few pints of cider to people on holiday? Do I need to mention that hags are German in origin? How about banshees coming over from Irish mythology? And the whole magical fruit-bearing tree? That comes out of, take your pick, Greek or Persian lore. Even the Christians could make a case for that one. At least demons are myth-neutral creatures. Maybe you put them in for the benefit of Swiss vacationers. Oh, but let's get the Americans involved with their zombie fest. Honestly, I have no idea this was a British folktale if you hadn't wedged in the Crusades in Merlin. You've really covered your bases for all travelers, haven't you? I know times are tough. Do you really need to invent an outlandish story around the mystical apples to make a pound? By any chance, do you have some magic beans lying around in the back for purchase too? Pure nonsense. I can see the barkeep's face getting redder and redder the more I talked. He picked the ten-pound note off the bar, walked to the register, rang up my purchase, and slot my change down in front of me. Kitchen's closed, and his penrose is three dollars down that way. Now kindly piss-off. I lifted myself from the bar stool and found the cider had more effect on me than I thought. I straightened myself, picked up my pack, and headed out the door. I took small consolation that I didn't get into a fistfight as I staggered toward the B&B. A light fog had begun to filter onto the cobbled streets with the flickering gas lamps giving an eerie sway to the buildings and vehicles. I marked it up to the influence of spirits, and stories about spirits, and continued onward. My temporary sleeping quarters were, to be generous, rustic, was more of a glorified hostel, single suite, complete with a mirrored washstand to make up for the fact that a common toilet was located at the opposite end of the hall. I couldn't care less about my surroundings as I flopped onto the creaky bed. Hopefully, I would get the energy to get out of my clothes soon. I didn't. Unlike the majority of my life, I didn't drop into a dreamless sleep. For the first time I could remember, my unconscious visions were bloody and horrific. Mortally wounded knights sputtered cries of help. And I could do nothing to ease their suffering. Viscera littered the ground around me like trash from an upturned waste bin. I stood before the advancing horde, uttering arcane words that caused the dark-skinned aggressors to begin shaking. They halted and began pulling at their terrified faces, that erupted into pus-filled boils. The enemy fell to their knees, wailing and cursing in a language I could not understand as they died in quivering mounds of torment. The scene abruptly changed. I was oceanside, surrounded on all sides by abysmal creatures with twisted horns and pulsing red flesh. They advanced, mocking me with moths that spewed volcanic spittle as they roared in voices arcane and unholy. In their midst, a hideous woman wore an expression filled with insane hate as she screamed at the demons to advance and lay waste to every living thing. I pulled a gilded horn from my cloak and put it to my lips, and a single thunderclap note from the horn, a devastating burst, set upon them, reducing them to lifeless husks. I looked up in time to see the skies above had begun to pulse with dark magic. Through the night's blackness, large fiery rocks belched from the swirling gray clouds. The hag pointed at me as if directing the flaming hail. I quickly pulled my cloak around me and dropped to one knee. I could feel the hellfire raging outside the cloak as the weight of the stones pushed me to the ground. I lay motionless, heard the hag's demented cries of joy moving closer and closer. By the time she realized her victory was a ruse, my hand was upon her neck. She showed neither fear nor surrender as I uttered arcane words. The ocean waves rose up as hundreds of clear, shimmering tentacles quickly immobilized the raging hag. I dismissed her with a wave of my hand, and the aquatic tentacles complied dragging her from the shore. Her vengeful screams continued as she sank into the deepest, darkest part of the ocean. I shall return, the hag shrieked. I bolted upright in my rented bed, soaked in sweat, breathing as if I had run a marathon. The partial moon peeked through the window, and silence was the only thing sharing the tiny room with me kicked my feet off the bed, pushed my damp hair from my face, and grabbed a hand towel from the nightstand. I walked to the washstand to clear the sweat. I soaked the cloth in the washbasin and stared into the mirror. It looked like hell warmed over. The cold washcloth on my face was a vacation from my mind, as it seemed to wipe off the horror that had invaded my dreams. However, these visions were so vivid... As if they were made of memory and not created by cider and the barman's story crafting. In all my travels, no village folklore had ever burrowed into my brain, like Lord Penswick's tale. I knew that had to be the cause. That is, until I saw her in the mirror. I spun around to meet the female figure behind me and immediately noticed she wasn't standing, she was floating. She was wrapped in a swirling, tattered gray gown that looked like it was made of smoke. Her face was obscured in the way an old photograph fades after decades, leaving only a memory of shape without definition. A faint light pulsed from her eye sockets, while her dark hair tumbled and pitched as if by an unseen breeze. The creature tilted her head, almost like she was considering what to make of this sweaty bloke next to the washstand. I didn't move. Not because fear had rooted me to the spot, but because I thought it better to let whatever this thing was make the first move. When faced with the unknown, it's better to react than act. And when she opened her mouth, the most unnerving shriek poured forth, shattering the mirror and showering me with shards. Ears ringing and head pounding, the sonic wail gave me opportunity that I was looking for. Snatched up my rucksack and rushed out the door. I didn't bother to look back as I barreled down the B&B steps and into the street. Fog had taken advantage of the night and spread about the village in a blanket of obscurity. I didn't know which way to go, and honestly, I didn't care. Anywhere but here was the plan as my hiking boots echoed quickly across the cobblestones. By the time the adrenaline had run its course found myself outside the town by the ocean side. It seemed the fog hadn't dared linger around the shore as I put my hands on my knees and tried to regain my breath. On the cliff above me I could see the ruins of Penswick Castle bathed in weak moonlight. Now that I knew where I was I could get in a quick breather and make my way. This haunted place would soon become a distant memory. I watched the water lap against the beach, and that's when a stench hit me. I'd been around many fishing villages. This was not the familiar smell of expired sea life. When I was in Belfast, a man had taken his life at the B&B where I was staying. In the summer heat, he baked and bloated until authorities answered complaints about the smell coming from his flat. This was the smell I now encountered fatted stench of rotting human flesh. They rose up from the ocean waves, a shambling mass of undead in various states of decomposition. In the moonlight I could see some dressed in ruined bearskins, some wearing tattered World War uniforms, and some fresher corpse decked in diving gear. Behind a line of decaying figures, a robed figure hovered. Mostly obscured by the dark night, the creature cackled and allowed the advance. I've returned! The floating creature cried out. It pointed a thin, crooked finger at me. And your souls shall be mine! As it moved forward, the moonlight revealed the creature to me. It was the face of a woman, but stripped of all femininity by something unspeakable. Wet silver hair clung around her gaunt face, as if submerged in the darkest depths for centuries. A soaked robe hung loosely on her frame, mottled with so much seaweed and silk that it dripped from her body like saliva from the teeth of a hungry wolf. And her eyes, those damned eyes, glowed with untold rage. Now I began full-on panic. The Run from town had left me winded, Not to mention the cider was still pumping through my system. Even though this army of the undead moved like they were relearning how to walk, there was no way I could outrun them. So I didn't try. I scrambled up some defensible rocks and reached into my rucksack. I happened upon one of my heirlooms, a long, curved knife I'd used many times on the road for cutting tinder when I camped outside supposedly had been forged in the Dark Ages, but it was as sharp as any knife I'd ever owned. Also, it seemed rather fitting this blade came from the Dark Ages, because I didn't think my life could get any darker. The undead clawed desperately at me with their wet, rotted fingers as their teeth chattered like starving animals. My knife turned, grasping hands into stumps in short order, but I knew I couldn't keep this up forever. It's only a matter of time before the foul-smelling horde overwhelmed me. Sure enough, one of the undead creatures hooked my pant leg, and my balance on the rocks was lost. I tumbled into the crowd. Their grotesque flesh and muscle felt like an old pudding that had been left out too long. My fingers easily sank into their fetid flesh with little effort. Had I not been in full-on panic mode, I would have emptied my stomach... Luck allowed me to keep hold of my knife, but the rotting fingers would eventually tear me to pieces. "'Is mine!' called their mistress. "'Only I shall take his life.' Her words did nothing to reassure me as I continued to swipe at the decomposing masses. Suddenly I heard the call of a hunting horn, followed immediately by a blast of concussive force that sent the uncoordinated legion hurtling away from me. The force of the blast was so powerful that it literally caused some of the undead to fly apart. I gained my feet and wiped away the sludgy undead viscera from my face. Apparently, I'd been at the center of the blast, yet suffered no damage. For a moment, I was awestruck by the rotted body parts that littered the entire beach. Foreign whore! hag lifted her hands skyward. As she pulled it down bolt of amber lightning struck Penswick Castle. For a brief instant, I saw a figure standing atop the rubble. After the devastating flash the figure had vanished. Everything had now become crystal clear to me. Everything. Boy, forget about me. I smiled and turned my hand to hide the knife. The hag dropped all pretense and was instantly upon me her cold breath reeking of ancient decomposition. She hovered close enough for me to see her skin was almost translucent, as if time had drained all color. Beneath the skin, unknown small creatures squirmed freely between the grayed strands of muscle. Her thin hand was stronger than it looked as she lifted me off the sand by my neck. No, I've not forgotten about you. She licked her lips with a discolored tongue. Only one mistake was made last time, Hag. My face shone a confident smile in the pale light of the moon. Wait! That face! I, plunging the blade under her chin abruptly, stopped the Hag's words. Her expression of discovery was quickly replaced by shock as the penetration made a squelching sound like a screwdriver piercing an overripe cantaloupe. The sharp edge slid effortlessly into her ancient flesh and embedded somewhere deep within her demented brain. I twisted the knife for good measure and felt cold, black blood gushing down the handle. Her fiery eyes registered the killing blow with a small amount of surprise and a larger portion of hate before extinguishing. Her corpse cushioned the landing when we fell to the beach. However, something told me that this wasn't quite done. Proper care was demanded. The blade made the job of decapitating the hag easier than I had thought. I held her head and stared at eyes that had held an unquenchable madness for hundreds of years. And for a moment, a brief splash of sympathy touched my heart. For an even briefer moment, I considered who would claim this beach scattered with undead carnage but I decided the townsfolk needed something to do other than sit around telling tales. Besides, I had something more important to attend to. Hiking up to the ruins of Penswick Castle, the first thing I saw in the moonlight was a lush garden thriving on the rocky ground. I also noticed the lightning scorch marks and the stone. Although the castle had been raised hundreds of years prior, the foundation and main structure looked solid, seemed to be free of vandalism, as if respected, and protected by the villagers throughout the ages. I walked through the main entrance and found the gutted interior of the main chamber, lit in soft candlelight. A figure, dressed in gray robes, floated softly in the center of the hall, her face now detailed and as beautiful as I had remembered it. My Lord! She held out an ancient leather-bound tome with a gilded hunting horn resting atop it. I dropped my rucksack, letting it clatter to the stone floor, placed my hand on her cheek. My beloved Ba, I am home. I hope you enjoyed One in the Mist by Jeffrey Ebright, as performed by yours truly. If you've enjoyed what you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author can be found by visiting our website. Just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Jeffrey Ebright. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash J-E-F-F-R-E-Y dash E-B-R-I-G-H-T. His profile goes to old and new episodes of his podcast, links to his various Amazon titles, or to his Facebook and Twitter, where you can see all sorts of things you may or may not wish to delve into. As a reminder, if you do decide to give tonight's talented author's stories a read, please consider leaving him a quality review and a kind word or a thoughtful public comment and an upvote. Sure to let him know you heard about him on this program in the Otis Century. It means more to me than you can imagine, and I'm pretty sure Jeffrey would much appreciate it as well. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, Please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archives dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week you can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis gyrie channel where you'll find releases of my series Horror Story Time, dating back to 2014 and you can find me on Facebook Twitter and Instagram too just search for Otis Jiry Until next week, stay spooky, and get some sleep, if you can. (laughs) Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Gyre. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett.